Hello and welcome along to the first edition of a new podcast, the Irish Bookshop Podcast. We're coming live from an actual Irish independent bookstore. Now because of the lockdown and social distancing, I'm in the bookshop on my own tonight. But coming to us via the wonder of satellite is my colleague, writer, historian and book collector, D.A. Gaisley. Hi, D.A. Hello, Walter. How are you? (laughs) <laughs> and we're also joined by two very special guests tonight, two aspiring Wexford writers who are both just getting to that stage where they're about to be published, um, getting to the end of their first books. So we have 18-year-old Alana Hamill from Kilmockridge, and we have slightly more than 18-year-old Seth Ryder <laughs> from Wexford Town via South Africa. So, DA, how are you? Not too bad, Wally. How are you? Do you want to put your uh, top and sin about what this podcast is all about? I will. Right. So, a few weeks ago, myself and Wally were talking. Uh, we had felt that the mainstream media in this country, or the ETG Catter, and some others had become very negative and completely covered of Corona, Corona, Coronavirus. Uh, while it is a very important issue, uh, as well as other issues that are going on in the moment, we believe that there needs to be more focus on the ordinary people's story, the people who are the bread and butter of Ireland, the people who are working in the arts uh, industry at the moment, which have been desolated by COVID. And I'm delighted to have two writers here today who are writing uh, during the lockdown. Uh, you know, it's it's a hard time for everyone. But myself and Wally would just like to say hello to all our listeners. Um, this is we're not we're not journalists we're not we're, we didn't study journalism uh i'm a historian wally's a bookshop owner uh it's just an idea that came to us and we hope that we can just get the voice of the ordinary people across we we are the voice for the many not the few lovely lovely very good and you might wonder what the irish bookshop podcast has to do with all of that but we've found in in recent months in our in my own bookshop, Red Books in St. Peter's Square in Wexford, that a proper traditional independent bookshop is a place where people gather, share ideas, uh, discuss the news of the day, discuss writing, discuss art. And now that we've been locked down, we've taken online to do that. So um, welcome along to our two guests. Alana, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. That's oh, great. Great to have you here, Alana. And welcome along, Zef. Thanks, man. Thanks. Uh, it's good to be to be doing something positive, like you said. We're tired of all the all the bad stuff, and you know the bad stuff's there, and we'll we'll deal with it. Uh, you know, we'll we'll eat the elephant one spoon at a time. But uh, for the rest of it, we have to to keep to keep living life. You know. Good, good. And Alana, you're you're working on. Your first novel at the moment. I know you've been published in in several periodicals, and um, you've won competitions. But do you want to tell us a little bit about your first novel? Yeah, sure. So my novel will hopefully be published with Red Books Press next year, and it tells the story of Paddy Byrne, who is a conscientious small farmer from Wexford, struggling to make ends meet as a farmer at the moment. So he decides to form a kind of alliance with three other farmers that live close to him, but they actually start growing and selling illegal substances. So it's the story of four farmers who have never come across such a thing, coming across such a thing. 
Very good. Sounds very good. And and in your um, own experience, is that something that goes on in the Greater Kilmuckridge area? Uh, you don't have no, to name them, but uh, are there farmers growing illegal substances? <laughs> We'll, no, we'll stay I don't away from think that. There is, not that I know of. I I did come from a farming background, and I don't know a lot about farming. Well, I probably know more than I think I do, but um, it actually stems from a joke a friend of my father made once, saying that the farming community was so bad that he might as well just start growing stuff like that. And I just thought, God, that would be a good story, wouldn't it? And eventually, it progressed into more and more for me. Good stuff. Da. Yes. Um, in, interesting there, Lana. Um, what first got you into writing? Um, you know, you're 18, I suppose. The, the LC, uh, English curriculum, doesn't really promote writing that much. It promotes learning off poems, learning off novels. Um, how do you feel about the English Leaving South curriculum? And do you believe that it promotes writing for young people? Or is it just a uh, head reckon that you have to learn off eight or nine poems? of poets that you're probably never going to read about again. Do you think that the um, the LC uh, English curriculum is up to scratch? And do you think that it promotes writing for young people or makes young people fall in love with writing? Well, it's funny you should say that, DA, because I actually got into writing through school. I remember my first day of transition year and my transition year coordinator said to me that she thought I was very creative. She had read some of the things I had written for the junior cycle. Now, juniors are English. I was actually the first year to do the new junior cycle, which is absolutely continuous assessment, which is a lot better for some people. And I did get a good grade in it, but it's not as flouncy and as descriptive and as full of imagery and as full of kind of love for the language as the Leaving Cert is. Right. So my TY coordinator suggested a few months after this that I enter a travel writing competition. And I thought she had gone mad because I never, I'm not big into traveling. I hadn't been many places. And she said, well, you could write about Morris Castle, which is the part of Kilmuckridge that I live in. So I wrote a piece. I interviewed a few people. I interviewed people who have lived in Kilmuckridge since the dawn of time, people who just stay down here during the summer and people who used to stay down here and now live here. And I wrote the piece, it came up runner up in the world. It was published in numerous local newspapers and also in a tourist magazine. So I got that love of writing through school. My school's closhed on all the teacher was Joanne McGonagall. But um, I do understand what you mean about the Leaving Sir English. Now, I loved Leaving Sir English. I remember every day I was waiting for that class. It was just the highlight of my day every single day. And the whole curriculum is split into two papers, paper one and paper two. And paper one is more about what type of writer you are. And paper two is more about what type of reader you are. Now, your creative writing element is actually worth 100 points, which is a massive chunk. It's worth the most out of any question. But you wouldn't be sitting in a Leaving Cert English class and be like, this is how you write a story as much as you'd be talking about this is how you write an essay. So even though I benefited from it, I do understand that Leaving Cert English is an extremely difficult subject. Only 2% of people get a H1 in it. And also, you're right in saying that it doesn't promote creative writing as much as it could. If we could focus more on the creative element, that would be absolutely brilliant. I feel like much more people would like it. There's a mass amount of poets and writers. And if you're into that, fair enough. But I felt like sometimes there was even too many poets for me. Um, but I did spend so much time in that subject, so I cannot say much. But you are right in saying that it, it, there could be a lot of elements that could be more creative 
if not the most creative part of the entire leaving cert. And you got a H1. Didn't you in English? I did get a H1 and I was delighted with that. Um, even though I put so much time and hours and blood, sweat and tears into that subject, I always had in the back of my mind, I probably won't get a H1 because it's so rare. Very good. I know myself from Walter um, had the same English teacher at Halley of Bridgetown College, uh, who was a brilliant <laughs> English teacher and who promoted English at every opportunity. And we done the old Leave and Start English, which was Learn Off Poets. Um, <laughs> and it, it was hard now if you didn't have the memory for it. I remember while, uh, my year, you had Heaney, you had Yates, you had Platt. Like, there were six poet, uh, poets, there were brilliant poets, but trying to learn off nearly 32 poems. And then you <laughs> were trying to, if you are having a love for uh, the English language, you weren't able to write because the whole time was trying to remember what Heaney had wrote in 1974 or what Sylvia Platt had wrote. And I, I know in my own experience, even though Anne Halley was a brilliant teacher, that I felt that the, the Leaving Cert English curriculum did fail me in mm -hmm. certain ways, that it didn't promote creative writing. Now, I, I know the, the new curriculum kind of does, but um, it's the same, I believe, also with the Irish curriculum, that it doesn't promote creative writing of our national language, which is mm -hmm. a very big pity. How would you feel about the Irish LC Leaving curriculum? Yeah, I feel a similar kind of content towards it. I do love Irish as a language. I absolutely adore speaking it. If I had my way, I would speak Irish every single day. But, I mean, it's almost a meme at this stage, leaving Sir Irish. You know, people make fun of it. And whenever I say to people, oh, yeah, I speak Irish, the like initial response is, oh, I had an awful teacher. I didn't enjoy it in school. But, yeah. As a class, I enjoyed it, but solely because of the language elements. You know, if it was any other language, I wouldn't enjoy it as much. But I will say my favourite Leaving Cert curriculum was probably the French, because the right. French curriculum actually has reading comprehensions, listening comprehensions, and then opinion pieces. And the opinion pieces are worth the most amount of marks. And all they care about is you getting your opinion across. So there's questions on politics, there's questions about sport, education, all these elements of life. And it's the most about you. You know, you can, even in your oral, you can talk about yourself. You can talk about your family. You can talk about, like I wrote, talked about writing a lot in French and reading. And I remember like I had my book prepared and I had a copy of my favorite book and I was going to present that through French. And fair enough, there was rote learning involved, but it was things I enjoyed. Whereas I can't do the same in Irish or English, which is ironic really. But French was all about me and all about my interests and all about my opinions. And fair enough, you're getting rid of the kind of literature element of things and you're saying to people, no, you shouldn't be studying poets and books. But isn't it more important that we have a grasp of the language rather than going straight for rote learning things off? Yes. And of course, you, you have a great love for language. You're, you're also studying a language at college, aren't you? I am. At UCD. I am. I'm studying Commerce International, French and Chinese. And what, what made you pick them, them two languages? Um, for French, it was, well, for the course overall, it was kind of every bit of life that I like, basically. Um, <clears throat> I know it sounds really boring. And when I say it to people, they think, oh, business, but it's actually not to do with business a lot. It's more to do with philosophy, sociology, anthropology and economics, which are theories that I would read in my spare time anyway. <clears throat> and then the reason I chose French and Chinese, I suppose, well, in um, fifth year of school I had an amazing French teacher who was actually from Belgium who just made me fall in love with the language and French literature and just I thought like 
you know, I might, I have this standard of it. I have, I'm happy with my standard in English and Irish. I'd like to improve my standard in French. I'm going to study it. If there was an option to do Irish, I probably would have, but I chose French. And then Chinese, I just thought it'd be interesting to learn a language that was completely opposite of anything I'd ever come across, you know, anything I'd ever been exposed to. Like the culture and the linguistics are so completely opposite of all the other languages. But yeah, I find myself comparing you know how they say a certain thing in Irish versus how they say a certain thing in Chinese and finding similarities somehow very good very good yeah. and Alana we're, we're seeing an awful lot of young powerful women writers coming through in Ireland particularly at the moment now mm-hmm. obviously that Sally Rooney is a bit of an influence there how important do you think she's been to the whole thing like what what kind of an influence did she have on you um, I first read Sally Rooney a month after Normal People came out and it was quite a bizarre experience because it was the first book I ever picked up and judged it off of its cover. I have the particular edition where it's um, Colin Marianne in the sardine tin, which is probably the most yeah. common cover. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought immediately, you know, I'd heard a lot about it and I read some reviews and I thought, okay, I'm going to read this, go in with an open mind. I don't know what it's about we'll go for it and it completely I don't think my life has ever been the same since I read that book because as I put it to people when I was reading that book I was a leaving search student reading about leaving search students and I was in this particular situation and they were in the same particular situation I was from the Irish countryside they were from the Irish countryside I was planning on going to college in Ireland they were planning on going to college in Ireland and I could relate to them on a different level because I was going through the exact same experience per se but there was, I'm sure there's people in all sorts of countries from all sorts of ages that are reading that book and can relate to it on a different level. And I just think Sally Rooney is such an amazing writer in the sense that she's so distant, but so connected. Like I've read that book, I think three times now, and every single time I come away from it with a different perception of it. You know, the first time I read it, I was amazed by the start of the book, the piece where they're in school and they're avoiding each other but then the second time I read it which was actually the time the television series came out I had a different perception of the end of the book you know why did it end that certain way and after I finished reading Normal People the first time and after I had understood those elements of the book I said I can be a writer you know if someone that's writing about people like me leaving certain students living in the Irish countryside can be a writer of course I can be a writer anyone can be a writer and it was the fact that I had to witness someone do something directly linked to me in order to inspire me was really what I came took from that book you know brilliant and you think it's you think it's easier for particularly for a young woman to come through now or do you think the doors are still kind of closed there? Um, I think, well, I'm quite a fan of Irish contemporary writing. And I think like the world as a whole has a lot of time for Irish writers at the moment. Um, as particularly Dave Lorden published a collection of short stories called Young Irelanders a few years ago. And at the start of it, in his introduction, he talks about how um, Irish literature in the late 20th century was kind of this, oh, feel sorry for us, you know, we've been through a hard time, whereas Irish literature in the 21st century is all about all sorts of niches and, you know, the, these topics that have never been covered before. And I often find myself wondering, would I like Irish literature if I wouldn't be Irish? And I think the answer is yes, because, you know, we do have this powerful way of telling stories, particularly Irish women. 
And yeah, I do think mm. it's easier to come out at the moment because there's so many women that I can think of that have inspired me and I've met them. And the fact that I've met my biggest heroes is just amazing for me. Wow. And do you find that it's contemporary writers that are really, that are really your muse? Are they the ones oh, that really inspire you? Yeah, definitely. Great. Sorry, DA. Another writer that uh, you've told me that you like is, is Anne Griffith. Um, yeah. Alana, of course, her book, uh, When All Is Said, is probably one of the most powerful books I've ever read because I've been there. I, I, I've sat at bars, many bars across mm. this country, uh, <laughs> talking utter crap to old <laughs> lads down in Kerry, to talking to young students in Galway, to talking to lads in Wexford. And I yeah. think she, you know, she spoke about, or she wrote about loneliness very well. Do you yeah. think that Anne Griffith um, kind of got you know true that her book was so powerful she is a powerful writer and um, do you think now between her Sally Rooney Nisha Dolan that Irish women writers probably for the first time will overtake male Irish writers in the sense that their work is going to get more awards than what Irish male writers are probably getting at the moment um, I mean, it certainly seems that way. But I remember before all this COVID lockdown, we had an International Women's Day in Red Books, Wexford. And I'd done a kind of a speech talking about Irish female writers. And I brought a few books with me. And like, I was under the impression that because I, re I read 104 books last year. And I remember thinking, God, I'd say most of them now were Irish. And I'd say, yeah, the majority of those Irish books were women. And I looked through it and I had read about 12 Irish female authors. So even though it does seem like they're everywhere, there's obviously not enough because if I could, I'd read Irish women all day. But um, yeah, it's certainly getting there. I'm seeing more and more published Irish women every day. I mean, we have some phenomenal resources. We have some phenomenal uh, literary magazines. We have our own literary magazine in Wexford, the Wexford Bohemian. And I hope to see published Irish women from that too. So it is becoming more and more common, but it does have a lot, of, a lot of a way to go still. I'd like a complete revolution of Irish female authors, to be honest. And back to Sally Rooney. Uh, have you read her book, Conversation with Friends, which, in my opinion, was, was a brilliant. You know, it was, it was uh, sharp. It was funny. It was uh, great. I believe got great um, kind of... She was great how she wrote about modern relationships. Uh, in my opinion, I, I would say to people... It's a must-read, as, as well as normal people. Very pow two powerful books. Mm -hmm. What would your thoughts be on conversation with friends? Do you think she got spot on with modern relationships in Ireland today? Um, definitely. Um, a particular takeaway I had from conversations with friends is that the main character suffers from a condition, endometriosis, which is a condition I had never come across previously in any form of art, let alone literature. And the way Sally Rooney describes that condition is beyond me how she even put it into words um like and the thing about sally rooney is she has this particular quote and i might not reference it exactly but it's um if you write well the reader won't even remember the words you said so even though i'm talking about her and i'm talking about how amazing she is i can't think of exactly what she said which just proves how good a writer she is but exactly that book is phenomenal and i don't really know how she described such a difficult situation so well very good, very good. And of course, you, you mentioned the Wexford Bohemian there. Of course, you had a piece in the first Wexford Bohemian called uh, Pains of Glass, which I yeah. believe was brilliant. I believe your your 
your wording of it was, was just amazing. What inspired you to write that piece, which I believe, in my opinion, is up there with, with some what Sally Rooney and Griffith Nisha Dolan had wrote in the last few months? Um, my piece, Panes of Glass, that was in the first Bohemian, was written about wanting something that you can't have. Right. And, um, of course, we, you know, do you think um, that the Wexford Bohemian is going to really promote women, women writers in Wexford? I know there was a phenomenal amount of women writers as well as male writers in the last one. Mm -hmm. The next one is out Friday. You have another piece in that. Would you like to tell us about that piece? Yeah, my piece in the second issue of the Wexford Bohemian is called His Box. And it's about a mother's love for her son and that nothing can come between them. But um, I certainly do think that it will, not just female writers, but writers in general and creatives and artists in general, I think that Wexford Bohemian is giving them a phenomenal platform, male, female, from Wexford, not from Wexford. It's amazing. Very good. And I'm very That's proud great. to be in. Brilliant. And what, when did you first figure out you wanted to be a writer, Alana? Can you remember that, that moment when it just, it just connected? Yeah, I think it was when, <clears throat> after I had done my first writing competition and my parents wanted to do a few events in our cafe. Um, and we were looking, like, we were thinking, okay, we could do something incorporating music. We could do something incorporating writing. And I had just been exposed to writing once. And I said we could have kind of a writing workshop. And um, at that moment of time, I knew very few, if any, writers. And I said, well, I'll lead it. You know, I'll teach them a few prompts and we'll see how it goes. And if it doesn't go well, sure, I can get someone else to do it another time. So word got around about that. And eventually I met the Gory Writers. That were my first writers group. And they were like, they still are like a second family to me. They've supported me so much. And it's, it's about coming across like-minded people. Um, for about a year after I joined them, we went to endless events together, like public readings, workshops, even just going for coffee together and talking about books or, you know, seminars where we'd meet really famous writers. Like, the, I can't actually believe the amount of writers I've met through them. And then we started getting serious and publishing our own stuff. And it was just, it was by being surrounded by other people. And of course they published their books. You know, my friends, Bernie Walsh, Chris Black and Ira, and who are all in Gory Writers with me, published books over the period of time that I, I was in the Gory Writers. Unfortunately, I haven't seen them in a few months, but the most recent book published is by Anne Ira and a beautiful collection of poetry. And, you know, witnessing that in front of you and seeing the praise that you get. I often said that a book launch is very similar to a funeral, but when someone's alive, because at a funeral, everyone's saying how amazing someone is, but they're not there to hear it. Whereas at a book launch, everyone can, you know, you're there and you can hear all the amazing things that people have to say about you. So it was just by witnessing the respect people have for literature right in front of me was what made something click in my mind that I wanted to do something about it. And as, I mean, as somebody who's 18, you're working full time, you're in college mm -hmm. and you're writing a novel. How do you do it? Like how does, <laughs> how for you is, is the practice done? How do you sit down? How often do you write each day? I don't think I write half as much as I should, to be honest. But I think the important factor is not to be a critic in how often you write because it will come to you, you know, 
over lockdown, I wrote so much because I had so much time on my hands. But, you know, none of that was any good. It was just little, like, elements of stories that I could incorporate to something but never did or stories that I wrote in full but I completely got, like, the perception that it's coming from wrong. Or, you know, it, I didn't describe things properly and it only made sense to me. So you, you need to remember that it's about quality and not necessarily quantity in that sense. So, you know, when I write, I try and put my everything into how I write. And obviously NaNoWriMo is coming up soon. And for the last NaNoWriMo, although I didn't get near finishing a book, I dedicated 15 minutes to writing every night. And I just think little elements like that are very important for our life. Like when I was in school and I went to writer's group, that was the only bit of writing I was doing. So I needed that kind of kick up my backside. But now I'm kind of copping on a little bit. And just when an idea comes to me, it's important to note it down. I bring a notebook and pen with me everywhere. Okay. Very good. And Alana, let me ask you this. Jeff Bezos, in 1994, formed a company called Amazon in a garage. Before this, he had been working on Wall Street. Originally, he was going to call it Relentless.com, which probably would have been more apt for what they've actually done, which is rape <laughs> the book industry. Um, since then, they've become the biggest suppliers of books in the world, the, the largest bookshop in the world, they call themselves. They've probably been responsible for the deaths of certainly in Ireland and the UK, a thousand independent bookstores. And mm -hmm. the guy has gone on record as saying his top five favorite books are basically business mentorship guides. So do you think <clears throat> he's an asshole? <laughs> that, yes. that, I'm not trying to pry the conversation, <laughs> but no, seriously, do you, do you think that Amazon are having a negative impact on, um, on the publishing industry because we can all throw eggs at the actual publishers and say, well, you know, you go through the mainstream publishing industry and they'll, they'll charge you 99 for your book, but they'll give you 25 cents per copy mm -hmm. as a writer. But a lot of that is down to Amazon having completely destroyed and, and caused this upheaval in the book world. Absolutely. But the, like, Would I'm seeing agree? it now, like <laughs> as someone that's planning on bringing out a book, um, so many people before me and even friends of mine have published the book through Amazon. And, you know, it's kind of, it's almost underwhelming. You know, you go through like, oh, I'm going to get 500 copies of it. And oh, it's going to look like this. And this is going to be the cover. Whereas with Amazon, it's just, yeah, yeah, this is it. And Amazon done it. You know, you can't really credit anyone else for it. But of course, calling themselves the biggest bookshop in the world is just... It's not right at all. I don't like I've never bought anything off of Amazon. And I think that's the proudest statement I can make about myself. But there's nothing like going to a bookshop. Like similarly, like there's nothing like going to a shop. And that's something that we're witnessing now. And something that I really miss about level five lockdown. But there is nothing like going to a bookshop and picking up a book because Amazon can't recommend you a book based on the last book you wrote or, you know, Amazon can't have a conversation with you in the corner like we do in Red Books Wexford, you know? They try to, to, to recommend stuff to you, but that's just based on, on algorithms, you know? Exactly. And the thing is, they're not the yeah. biggest bookshop in the world. They're the biggest data mining company in the world. That's that's the real asset, <laughs> is the data. Mm -hmm. It's not the products they sell. It's, that's just a buy, you know, just buy thing for them like a byproduct but the thing is, is the data you know that's 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 what they're about you know so Zeph Ryder you're working on a book I, I think you're almost finished now do you want to tell us a bit about it yeah I'm I am finished um 
the first draft anyway uh, is finished now. Uh, you know, basically, I had a certain amount of the story I wanted to tell. And when I got to the end, I knew it was the end. You know, I, I didn't want to ne- un- unnecessarily drag out something, uh, you know, a story that's told, it's t- it's told, you know, and there's no point in kind of dragging it out after that. Yeah. So, so I'm, I am finished. Um, now it's just a matter of getting it all done, um, editing it and, and, and all of that. Um, I, I, I make things difficult for myself because I, I write on a typewriter. <laughs> so um, okay. that means I have to obviously digitize everything after I wrote it. Uh, but it's, it's more about... To me, it's just about the art form of writing on a typewriter. It's just completely different. Now, I might sound like some pretentious fucking hipster, but um, it's just... Yeah, no, I, I can see where you're coming from. It feels... I've, more, I've been told it's almost like a meditation process. It is. It's a click-clacking right. right. it's like It's like the beat of the music, and it's kind of like, like sculpture. It's like you're... you're hammering the story in, into the paper, you know, key, key by key. So this, it's a different experience. And um, yeah, the book's going to be called um, All of Them Hipsters. So. Okay. And do you want to tell us a little bit about the content without giving too much away? Yeah, it's, uh, it started off as uh, me reminiscing about the old days you know when it started i started writing it obviously like like a lot of people um writing at the moment i started writing in 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 lockdown and Mm. you know at the moment things are tough so you you kind of think back to when things maybe weren't so tough you know maybe when you were younger or or when things were easier, not for everybody, but you know, a lot of people mm. you know, didn't have it good. So you, you think you think back and um, start reminiscing about simpler times, I suppose. So that, that's where it really started. I started thinking back about about things that happened in my life and stories that people told me. So the book is a mixture of truth and and lie, you know, and and. No one that reads it will know, <laughs> you know, the, where the line is drawn, and, and like I always say, you know, and you ne- should 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 never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Absolutely, and now I know you've already got your cover for the book. I've been told that the cover involves yeah. you naked, wearing pink <laughs> stockings underneath a blanket. Am I right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You you don't see. You want it to be a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) You don't see the spicy bits, or or you might. It's a surprise, you know. But uh, but it does involve. It it does involve. It's a quilt cover, though, not a blanket. (laughs) uh, And it 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 does involve pink stockings, definitely. uh, Or electric blanket, myself. (laughs) (laughs) If it was an electric blanket, I would have shocked (laughs) shocked myself and. In dangerous places, so I, <laughs> I just, like, just, just what you're saying there. Is Sorry, Dia, you go on. Um, tell us if what writers aspired you um, throughout the years, 
um like growing up uh in your 20s like what what writers stuck out for you and what writers would you keep going back to now to read what writers really um just inspired you to get into writing the first writer i really remember liking was 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 stephen king my dad had stephen king books he had lots of books he had you know um Dick Francis and, and Jeffrey Archer and, and all of that kind of stuff lying around the house. But Stephen King was the first one that kind of grabbed my attention. When I saw the books on, on my dad's shelf, I wanted to read them. And I was about nine years old, so my parents didn't really want me to read Stephen King. But um, some of them they let me read and some of them I kind of read in any way. And um, that, so that was the first one that I read and decided, you know, I wanted to be a writer, I suppose. Before that... I always loved books. My my parents raised me to to love books. So, you know, when I was five years old, they signed me up for this book club, a monthly book club, children's book club, and I'd get books every month, age-appropriate books. So I always loved books. But when I started reading Stephen King, that made me think, you know, I could become a writer maybe one day. Um, before that, even when I was about four years old, I would make up little stories. So I'd, I'd draw pictures and then I'd get my mom, mom or dad to kind of write the story for me. And as soon as I could write myself, I would write the little stories myself, you know. So it was always something that I wanted to do. And you know the way when you're a child, they say to you, what do you want to be when you, when you grow up? So the, the, the first thing that I wanted to be was a writer, you know, and then Later on in life, you know, you, you think maybe you'll make more money if you're like a doctor or, or, or at some stage I wanted to be an astronomer. But then um, at age 11, I, I discovered rock and roll and, um, you know, picked up the guitar and, and started playing music. And that kind of took me away from, from writing. I mean, I wrote, I always wrote poetry and, and short stories and, and everything. I've, you know, and even novels. I never stopped writing, but I wrote just for the sake of writing. I never thought at that stage, you know, that I want to become a writer after I discovered music. Uh, but I always wrote, I always wrote, and it was just something that needed to come out of me. It's like, it, it's it's a compulsion. It's like, I, ca I can't stop myself to write, even if I try, you know? And, and what, what, what was the moment when you, you saw past that, that, becoming a writer was something that became a real possibility well the thing is to me um the music if if i never went into the music and if i didn't live that life that rock and roll life in the bands and touring and and all this mad shit then i wouldn't have anything to write about so that had to happen i think for me to be able to write you know because you have to kind of live a life to write about it I mean, yeah, you, you can write stories and everything else, but basically, when when I um when I moved down to Wexford, I um I went to your original bookshop, Wally's original bookshop in Bridgetown before he moved to town, and he invited me and and my wife Susie, who's a writer as well, to come to the the, the Bridgetown Writing Club, which was at that stage, uh, which eventually became the Red Books Writing Club. But uh, you know, and then. I started with the first, uh, 2018, I did the Nano, the Nano Remo, and I did 30,000 words of a horror novel, 
just like I said before to, 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 to Gaisley there, you know, Stephen King was my first real influence. Um, so, you know, I, I always loved, I, it's not like I'm not a big fan of other horror books, although here and there I do like one, but Stephen King is mainly, to me, he's much more than a horror writer. He's more like, a, he's the Bruce Springsteen of writing, you know, he's like the American heartland writer and there's just a lot of horror in it because, you know, life is reasonably horrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, so at that stage, then going to the writing club and doing the Nana Remo and things like that, I thought, you know, I, I have to go back to this because the music thing, I still do that, but it's it's a bit on the back, not on the back burner, but like I said, the writing thing never went away. It, it was always there in the background. I, I always did it. But yeah. it's just at the moment to me more something that I can get my teeth into. And, and now... And that, that fusion. The fusion, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that fusion between writing and music, I guess that's reflective in, in, in your influences from the beats as well, because you, you are somebody who's very open about um, being influenced by the beat generation to the extent that you set up your own Wexford version of the beatniks, the beatniks. Yeah, that, that came about as a joke, really. I mean, what I was going to say to, to Gaze's original question later on in life, you know, he asked about in my 20s what books I read then. So, like, you know, basically I started reading in my 20s more, like, books about science and things and, and nonfiction. Um, Stephen Hawking and uh, uh, Graham Hancock and, and, and Eric Von Daniken. I mean, I don't know if, if you see him as fiction or nonfiction, but that kind of thing. And then <laughs> and then the person that inspired the book that I'm writing at the moment is, is um, my best friend, and he, he committed suicide last year. It's actually almost exactly a year ago now that he, he unfortunately decided that he didn't want to carry on in his life anymore. But he, and on his 30th birthday party, and I would have been about 28 at the time, he introduced me to Charles Bukowski. Now, I know Bukowski, wow. he's lying there in, in heaven or hell and saying, fuck, you know, why are you saying that I brought you to the beat generation? Because he didn't really like the beat generation, but he always gets lumped in with them. But but that yeah. is what you know what what got me into that sort of writing the more like the realism side of things so you know that I just love that Bukowski that you know dirty realism uh, and then you know from there I got into the Kerouac Jack Kerouac and and all the rest of them you know Ginsburg yeah. Burroughs and the whole Baitnik thing was just you know. Uh, Susie, my wife Susie, I, I got her this beret a long time ago, like this black beret. And we did this thing when when, when Wally started uh, Red Books in, in St. Peter's Square last year, September, we did this thing for Culture Night out, out in the square. And um, there was a picture of Susie standing next to the shop in her beret looking like a beatnik. But, you know... Uh, in the Wexford, <laughs> just taking the, the piss out of, not taking the piss out of Wexford, not like belittling Wexford or anything like that, just tongue in the cheek, fun, you know, it's Batnik. And that's really where it came from. So it's not like I, I consciously sat there and said, I'm starting this Batnik thing and I'm <laughs> starting this. But it just happened that that happened. And then, you know, 
people started to the community that we have, which lovely community of writers, and you, get, you have people like uh, Dean Ray Bolger, a poet, you know, who's also a big fan of Kerak Mikowski, and you know, it's just, it's just, like, it's really just having a good time with it as well, you know. I always believed yeah. that Bukowski would fit in very well with the Leavensart curriculum in Ireland in English. Uh, others said no, but I believe Bukowski is probably one of the best writers of his generation. Do you think that he would be a good person to write about for uh, an examination in English for the Leavensart Zeph? Definitely, definitely. I mean, um, Number one is he, is very honest in his writing, so that's that's a that's a whole different dimension. You know, you, you get the kind of writing that's full of allegory and metaphors, and you can break it down and, and this, that, and the other. But you know, he basically, you know, he writes what he means. He doesn't try to to, to disguise it as anything else. Uh, and I think that it would be helpful for pe for people to learn that way. You know. To see that that's also an option that you don't always have to 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 go all all, all out and you know there's nothing wrong with with you know Joyce or or, or anyone else it's brilliant stuff but there, there's you know Bukowski is just another way of doing it I suppose and yeah it's a different angle you know to come to come at it so definitely and well, I know it's, I know it's a bit problematic in the sense that. Some people could see him as being a bit misogynist or, but the truth is, is that he, he really kind of hated everybody. It's not that he hated women or that he hated anyone in particular. He hated everyone and he hated himself a lot of the times, you know, so, but at least he was honest, you know. Yeah. Well, I guess with Bukowski, as you said, he, he kind of distanced himself from the beats, but he is lumped in with him. And the Beats, they, they were writing at a time of great social upheaval when, um, I guess, one age was starting to clash with another, uh, which effectively led to the 60s and riots on the streets in America. And we seem to be living through that kind of time of social upheaval again. I mean, who would have thought four years ago that, you know, the online culture war that's that seemed to exist in in backward areas of the internet like 4chan would have spilled out onto the streets and we'd have people setting fire to cities in America and holding mass demonstrations in Dublin over whether or not they should wear a face mask. So do, do you think this is a good time to be a, a kind of an outsider writer? This is a thing. I mean, like I said, the whole Baetnik thing and, and, and started as, as a joke. But now looking back at it, and it's only been a year since it all started, but what a bloody year it's been, you know, and mm. uh, yeah, it's like we are the new beat generation because what Kerouac said, it, it's it's the the disillusioned generation after the Second World War and and the Korean War. Uh, and basically it's it's kind of history repeating itself. So it, it, it kind of comes around at, a, at an interesting time and it comes around at the right time. You know, it's it, it seems fitting. Yeah, definitely. And it's mad, you know, like you said, you know, everything, the clash, it, it's a clash. I, I'm, I'm saying to a lot of people that I think at the moment, I think uh, it is the third world war. We're going into World War Three, And I don't think it's being fought with guns 
as such. I mean, the, you get your skirmishes here and there, but I think it's it's a it's a war of minds and and cultures Absolutely. and opinions. You know. Absolutely, it's been fought with memes, isn't it? It is. You know. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, we could argue all day about the benefits and of the internet. We are here tonight talking <laughs> thanks to the internet, but there's certainly been disadvantages as well in social media. Um, it seems now if you think one thing and you agree with certain people, then you have to agree with them on everything else. You can't yeah. be your own person anymore. You can't stand in the middle. No. And uh, that's not really a position a writer can occupy because they have to think for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Cause basically what, what you see now, uh, even on the comments of like the journal, you know, the, the journal that I, or anything like that, people choose their sides. So whenever there's anything, people jump to their sides immediately. There's no in-between, there's no nuance. And if you say anything uh, outside of some someone's specific opinion, then you're, you're automatically on the other side. You can't be a bit of both, you know, in their minds, you know. And, and personally, I, I, had a, <laughs> I had Facebook, uh, I had problems with Facebook. I mean, they, they first of all, um, someone acting and stole some money from me. Uh, through the Facebook ad system. And then a couple of weeks after that, someone hacked my profile and then apparently used my profile for um, for for ISIS or, or probably not really ISIS, just to act like they're ISIS or something like that. And then Facebook ended up closing my profile, one that I had since 2017, you know, like loads of friends and everything I had on there. And, and that's gone for good now. So I decided I'm not going back to that. And whilst I'm still an advocate of technology, because I'm on, on Zoom talking to you, and, I've, and I'm sitting in front of an Apple Mac, I've got nothing against technology, even though I write in a typewriter. But, uh, you know, I'm not going back on, on Facebook for that reason. You know? But do you find on Facebook that you get a lot of um, attractive young women sending you friend requests? I, I, I found this a lot. The last one, it turned out to be a Nigerian guy called Steve who wanted my bank details. Which I thought, what what a wonderful world we live in, you know, that somebody in Nigeria can reach out to me and try to scam me out of my bank details. You know, it, it's we're we're definitely getting closer together, even though sometimes it feels we're pushing farther apart. What do you think? Yeah, you see, the the problem is, um, it's a tool. You know, the internet is a tool. Social media is a tool, and and the tool in the wrong hands uh, is a bad thing doesn't matter what it is. I mean, when mobile phones came out, first of all, they're good because you can contact people and you can phone people in an emergency, but at the same time, you can sell drugs and do human trafficking through them, you know? Okay. Okay. Well, Alana, we were talking about the culture war and, you know, a lot of people would say that your generation are directly to blame for that, but do you think it's contributed to your writing? <laughs> Um, yeah, I suppose without subconsciously. Yeah. Also, you have this thing now of date naps, which if you were to say for 40, 50 years ago to people in rural Ireland that went to dances, that you would be able to sit in your house on a date nap, type in just say 10 kilometers and meet up with a girl or a fella from down the road. People would have laughed at you, but that, that's the way the world we live in now. What are your thoughts, Alana and Zef, on date naps uh, in this country? 
It wouldn't really be for me to be honest. I'm I'd I'd rather meet people in real life. I think it's more authentic. But let people have them, you know. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I I'm I'm a live and let live type of person. So do whatever you want as long as you're not harming anyone, especially children. And other than that, do whatever you want, you know. Well, I know I know you've been doing a lot of research on dating apps for a, an upcoming book, BA. Um, it seems you spend more time on Tinder these days than you do in, in the bookshop, but I know it's all for it's all for educational research. But uh, it's interesting what you say there, Alana, because I suppose the, the view of people my age would be that everybody who's 18 is going to be, you know, they're going to be on Tinder. They'll only read books on a Kindle. The, you know, they're they're constantly using technology. But I find that a lot of younger people who come into the bookshop will never pick up a Kindle. And they, they're actually, they know the technology is there to be used, but they're, they're a lot more savvy of it that they know that this this thing can actually mess with your mind. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, um, like the older generations, they take what they read very seriously. Whereas I think because we've been exposed to it for a long amount of time now, my generation and the generation above me would be more like, okay, this might not be true. I'll take this at face value. Mm. Yeah. That's the thing. The older generation used to get, they used to go to the newsstand and get the newspaper. And, you know, <laughs> we, we can talk all day about how reliable the newspaper is in any way, because it's not. But, but basically, you know, that was at least fact-checked on some level. Whereas now, you know, they see a meme and they don't fact-check it and they just share that meme. And, and within 10 minutes, 10 million people saw something that's a lie. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit daunting, you know. Absolutely. And elections have been won and lost on it, haven't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're still... But, um, <laughs> yeah. But Alana, um, coming back to the writing, what would be your advice to other young aspiring writers coming up? Well, first of all, I would say read as much as you can. I read so much when I was a child, but my biggest regret is not reading more. I wish I read 10 times the amount of books I could. I, read, I try and read around 50 or 100 books every year, depending on if I have exams or not. And if I tried, I'd say I could have read 200, and I wish I did now. Um, and then second of all, write as much as you can. I know I said that like quality is more important than quantity, but just try and summon the ideas and try and make plans and try and just make your mind fit for writing as much as you possibly can. But most importantly... I think, is to surround yourself with like-minded people. Join a writer's group if there's one near you. I hear so many people saying, oh, there's no writer's groups near me. There's loads. You know, in my nearby constituency, there's about seven at least. Um, But before I started a writer's group, I, I didn't know what writer's groups were. I didn't know where books came from. I just thought they fell from the sky. But if you can't, you know join a writer's group, go to bookshops, go to cafes, read books, go to libraries, talk to people. It's very intimidating to talk to people and it almost feels kind of cringe when you start talking about books and you don't really know what you're talking about, but try your best anyway. And if you're someone who is aspiring writer at the moment, I understand it's difficult because there's no events, but you actually have the upper hand at the moment because you can go to a Zoom call with a writer's group and no one has to see what you even look like. 
and you can still learn everything you have to learn and you can still meet new people and of course it's not the same but you know if you're nervous you don't have to show them your face and you don't have to worry about what they'll think of you that's good advice especially about um reading uh now i know this this is gonna maybe just it's thrown it at you but if yet if i was to ask you to name five books that's an inspiring writer should read what what would you recommend just off the top of your head now oh god um <laughs> i'm gonna uh, will i list the ones that inspired me maybe mm, definitely yeah okay so i'd probably say i'm looking at my bookshelf right now um when the first book i read that made me fall in love with books i bought i got it for my fifth birthday was Clarice Bean by Lauren Child and it's about this little girl and I could relate to her a lot because she she's very anxious and she's very nervous and I just thought that was amazing because I had never understood a character before then so I definitely recommend Clarice Bean to any young readers and then um, a book I read that was phenomenal was The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks I read it in one night and I love that because that was the most contemporary book I've ever read, if you get what I mean. Like, the things that he was coming out with in that one, I could not come, even grasp. Um, and then, for me, probably, I'm, gonna, I'm trying not to mention um, Anne Griffin and Sally Rooney. Um, <laughs> let me see. <laughs> I love Donald Ryan. And The Spinning Heart, for me, was a brilliant book because it... Um, gives the point of view of more than two or three characters it gives the point of view of a whole village and it's also very Irish Donald Ryan's a brilliant writer I had the pleasure of meeting him around this time last year I remember the night very well he's a brilliant speaker so that was kind of me witnessing Irish literature all over again and then um the Russell Carl Kelly books are another brilliant Irish book and um, once again written in a dialect of South Dublin I think they are phenomenal and finally, um, goodness, I'd say, you know what, I'm going to throw in the Wexford Bohemian there because you can see, <laughs> you can see that there's people from all sorts of backgrounds um, and you can see that there's people all around you because I'm presuming that the majority of people listening to this are from Wexford, if not, hello, international or, or inter-county uh, listeners. But um, you can see that there's people in your own area that are very much interested in it. And that's how you're going to meet them. You're going to read that and you're going to be like, wow, Lana Hamill wrote this piece. I might follow her on Instagram and have a chat with her. Feel free to do that if you like. Good stuff. See, it's interesting Lana should bring that up because the books that inspired me completely non nonfiction. I suppose as a historian, uh, a lot of books on John F. Kennedy inspired me growing up. Uh -huh. As well as Dermot Fredder, um, you know, Owen McGee, um, also biographies by politicians. But um, it's interesting that we all have, just have this different tonight. We all, all four of us have this different, you know, books that inspired us. Steph as well with Stephen King. Um, I did not like Stephen King. Uh, but then I think of what Helena just said and three of the writers that she just spoke about, um, you know, even though they're female writers, really inspired me uh like i think sally rooney in my opinion is the best irish female writer of all time you I, love about rooney I, I i do like sally rooney i won't lie i i think sally rooney you know normal people was just was just extraordinary like 
what she wrote in that book, we've all been there at some stage of our lives, whether it's in school, uh, relationships, the grad, uh, even with conversations with friends, like some of the stuff she wrote about, which w- was powerful. Now, you know, I'm not putting down Stephen King, but I read Stephen King when I was 12 years old. Couldn't get into him. Read him again when I was 15. And I also read him when I was in college. Now, I've seen a different side to it because I suppose I was an adult at this stage. But I, I, if I had to read Stephen King or Sally Rooney, I would go back to Sally Rooney every day. And I'm probably the only male in this country that probably saying that right now. And, you know, I, I don't care because, you know, and, and you will remind me of an upcoming Sally Rooney as well as a young Anne Griffith up and coming because your writing is similar to them. Brilliant stuff. Thank you. The, that's the beauty about about books. You know, you be, everyone has their different books they like, and we, we can all talk about it, and we can learn from each other. And you can learn from a book. Like I sometimes try to read outside of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. which is which is brilliant because then you you might discover something. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you you pick up something that you don't think you're going to like, and you read it and you say, "Well, the fuck, I don't like this," <laughs> and I didn't think I was going to like it either. But sometimes you you surprise yourself. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Who wrote the Glorious Heresies? That's brilliant. Um. Yeah. Yeah. The car. Uh, oh my God. Well. She, Lisa, she's from Cork. She's from Cork. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a brilliant book. That's so good. I really enjoyed that book. Yeah, it's really good actually, and she done a follow up to it. Yeah, I never, I never, I never got into the follow up yet. So I have to pick but it it's, up. It's interesting what you say about reading outside your comfort zone because uh, it kind of goes back to the old anti-censorship argument because I know in, in my bookshop we sell all books mm-hmm. and uh, we've kind of gotten in trouble with some with some crowds uh, especially in the current climate um, so I mean we'll have everything there from you know Sally Rooney we'll have great feminist literature we'll have every type of kids book imaginable we'll have your mills and boons and then sitting in the middle of it we'll have Mein Camp or <laughs> we'll, we'll have you know the Communist Manifesto but these are books, if, if you start censoring books, if you start hiding them away, then that, that adds something to them. It's, you know, it's particularly if it's, if it's kind of a controversial book, you don't, you don't need to do that. Books shouldn't be banned. And I think mm-hmm. if you start banning books, you're one step away from burning them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with you. Yeah. Like I said, it could have the opposite effect, like, like Howell Ginsburg, you know, that, <laughs> that made him famous. So, so ban my book, Wally. Book, <laughs> well, it's, it's an argument that uh, the, the Wexford writer Dahi Kavanaugh always makes that the reason we, I suppose, our, our best export at the start of the 20th century or the first 50 years was our writers. You know, we had Joyce, we had Patrick Kavanaugh, we had Brendan Bean, um, mm-hmm. and they all shared that notoriety of being banned. Um, but it was very, very easy to be banned here. And that time period, you know, you look at yeah. the Taylor and Nancy, the book was banned because there's a mention of uh, a cow being taken to a bull. And uh, that, that was enough to have it banned. And uh, End O'Brien, if you look back on the Country Girls trilogies now, great books, End O'Brien, yeah. a proper, a, a proper powerful woman in a, a difficult time to be a powerful woman in Ireland, I suppose. And uh, they, they went to town on her to try and to try and ban her books. If you read the books now, you'll realise there's absolutely nothing in it that, that should ever have had it been bad. But it probably done her good. It done the books good, definitely, on international sales anyway. 
Yeah, but look at the country <laughs> girls. Like, if you look at the country girls, if, if you take it, the time, if, if, if you think back to the time where you're 13, it is this um, reasonably older chap going for this so this younger girl and she's kind of waiting for him and and that kind of thing. And it, it, it is a bit, I suppose at that time, you know, it, it was probably a bit a bit risque for, for the time that it well, came I, I think if it was wrought now, it would be the opposite way. It would be the young girl going for the older man, you know. Especially <laughs> <laughs> by DA's research on Kindle research. <laughs> on Kindle research. But, um, but yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. But the country with mad years ago, Bannon, lads that were just trying to, you know, like Sean O'Casey, looking back now, he wrote about poverty in Dublin. Like that poverty, 100 years on, is still there in some parts of this country. Mm-hmm. If Sean O'Casey wrote it now, he'd be praised. You know, political parties across the country be saying, oh, geez, you know, you know, this, this is brilliant, you know. But back then, mm-hmm. Sean O'Casey wrote about what was happening in this country. He was bad, you know, he, he, you know, he, he was censored. The same with Patrick Kavanagh. Like Patrick Kavanagh was, in my opinion, and I'm actually looking at Patrick Kavanagh here now. It's ironic because I have Patrick Kavanagh, Shane Ross, John Burko, Brian Darcy, the priest, and Hemingway on the same shelf. <laughs> probably now, you know, back in 1940s, Ireland probably wouldn't have been allowed. And I have Charles McQuaid and De Valera's books right on the bottom. And then I have Art of Griffith in the middle, which is, you know, it's great to have that. And I have Sean Lamas there as well, and then the Kenny and, you know, <laughs> the, the, the mountain censoring that happened in this country. And the amount of writers that had to leave Ireland just because they spoke about what was happening in Ireland back then was unbelievable. And looking back now, uh, you know, pe- pe- some people that drove them out sh- should, be, should be ashamed, sh- should really be ashamed because they were our best writers and they were censored for what was happening in the country. Absolutely. And I think if Sean O'Casey was around now, he wouldn't write it the aid. Probably fawn into Joe Duffy instead. Ciao, <laughs> 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 the virus is there, Ciao. But uh, speak to Joe on Lawyer Flying. But uh, just say we, we do like Joe Duffy. If you'd like to have us on someday, you know, we're, we're always available. We've nothing to do now for five weeks. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, look, nearly four, nearly, yeah, five weeks. You're right. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're one week down and five to go, right? Yeah. If it all goes according to plan. Um, but like you know even as a historian I know our college library I remember going into the college library in Galway and asking for George Orwell and I was told oh, we, we don't have that I asked for Hemingway uh, we, we, we don't have that I asked for Homer uh, we don't have that uh, you know and I kind of thought Jesus you're supposed to be a college library you know now you know English students would be looking for them books but I was told oh over there you can get you know, you can get James Patterson or you can get Jeffrey Archer or you can get some thrillers. But I was thinking, where's the writers, the controversial writers of Hemingway? Mm-hmm. Where, where, where's Hemingway? Like like Hemingway, in my opinion, you know, I'm a big fan of Hemingway. Um, where, where was Hemingway? I also went to look for a few history books, which I was told that, that we don't have that. We don't have that. And a college library, in my opinion, should be stopping every sort of book. But, you know, if you're going for certain, if you're only stocking certain books and you're not stocking other books, you know, you're getting to a point where, you know, why do you have five copies of Sally Rooney on the shelf, but you don't have Arthur Griffith's The Resurrection of Hungary? Or you have, and Griffiths went on and said, but you don't have, you know, um, 
books on, you know, you have books on the airlines, you have books on this and that, but you don't have books on just say, you know, James Joyce, even though, you know, Joyce, Joyce is very popular. You know, people are missing out, in my opinion, now I can't speak for other libraries. Well, there was only one other college library I was in, which is an Anna's UCD. I was in the Joyce Library. Great collection there. But in my opinion, you know, if you're getting to the point where you're not stocking some books because, you know, the young people of today, the snowflakes might be offended, but you're stocking the books which you think they might like, well, then people who are all sorts of different people in life are missing out on, you know, and that, that's frustrating, you know, as well, that I can't go into a library and get Hemingway, but I can go in and get Sally Rooney, even though I'm a big fan of Sally Rooney. But if I wasn't a fan of Sally Rooney, which I know there is people out there, and a good friend of mine, I hate Sally Rooney, but I can't get Hemingway, but I can get Sally Rooney. You know, where, where, where's the point in that? You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's suppose it's impossible to stock everything, but, but you know, a good cross-section is, is good. You know, it's, but I, I don't see the point in, in, in any form of censorship, you know, that, that's just stupid. Absolutely. I, I thought, I thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, we're in 2020 now, I thought, you know, maybe censorship will be gone. And I know free speech and hate speech isn't the same thing. Uh, you know, there there's certain lines that you don't cross, but but a book is a book, you know. Yeah, agree. I totally agree. And like, I suppose as well, I was actually on Twitter the other night, and someone was giving out about this book. Um, uh, you know, Shane Ross's book came out today called "In Blade with the Blue Shirts," right? Very controversial title. Um, you know, um, my, my old party, but. You know, someone actually said on Twitter, you know, I won't be reading that book because the title, you know, In Bed With The Blue Shirts, they were completely appalled by the title of the book, which you should never judge a book on its title. Like, there have been some awful, shy title books by Irish writers, but when you flick into the books, they're brilliant, you know? I, I think people need to kind of, you know, even I'm reading Hen Cullen at the moment, The Truth Must Dazzle Gradually. The cover is brilliant, but some woman said, ah, oh, no, the, the title is too long. The book is going to be too long. You know, I, I think we've a long way to go in this country before people, you know, realise, you know, more people love reading. You know what I mean? It is a very, like, mm. like I'm not from here, and it is a very literary country. Like, it's the most, I, I haven't been, I, I've only lived in three countries in my life, but it's the most literary country I've ever lived in. Or, or you know, people are mo seem to love books more than in other places. Now, obviously, everywhere else, where I lived, I'm, I'm from South Africa and I lived in England and there's books everywhere in both those countries, but, but the Irish seem to have a special connection to it. And the fact that you do have uh, such a disproportionate amount of famous authors for, for the size of the population further mm -hmm. proves that you, you are a nation of writers and thinkers and book lovers. And, you know, that's beautiful. That's, that's why I fit in here because that's, <laughs> like I said, you know, that's that's one of the first things that I loved in my life, and it's one of the great loves I always brought with me throughout my whole life is books, reading, and writing. You know, that's that's nice to hear, and I I think I'm I'm not sure who said it now. I think it might have been Patrick Kavanagh, but in in Dublin in the 1950s there was a great literary scene, and uh, I think it was Kavanagh who said you couldn't throw a stone because you'd end up hitting a writer, and it was. It was pretty much the case. They were, you know, Dublin is a small city by, 
by UK and international standards and people tended to know each other if they were writers, certainly at that stage. Then you had Galway in the 80s was very similar, but I think the place to be now is Wexford yeah. because really you, you can't throw a stone without hitting a writer. Mm-hmm. It is. It's brilliant. It's um, it's magical. You know, it's it's uh, something something in the air or something in the water. How how much of an effect do you think COVID? And I mean, we had a, we had a three to four month lockdown earlier on in the year. A lot of people were locked down for longer than that, depending on what sector they were working in or if they had underlying health conditions. And now we have another lockdown. How much of an effect do you think that's having on creativity? Because I, I know it's it's come up a lot on, on talk shows that, that people seem to be, they're certainly stressed. They're, there's a lot more people recording having nightmares, night terrors. But I think it's also having a positive effect on creativity. Yeah, I mean... Trendy as well, isn't it? It's just like you go onto your social media and you see photos of books and you see, you know, this whole, like, aesthetic of sitting around cafes and reading. It's just really nice. And that's what appeals my generation. They're, like, romanticising their lives and that's part of their lives that they want to romanticise. That's that's nice. Do you think that's a marked difference in your generation? Do you, do you yeah. feel that, that is something they like romanticizing their lives oh absolutely and actually I was on social media the other night and a girl I follow put up a photo of your place of red books and I was like oh, oh my really? god no just like because it's just it's pretty it appeals to us and you know we like this kind of like it might suit our like we're all into aesthetics and we're all into how we look and the kind of energy we give off and everything and bookshops and writing and reading have those energies, those ambiences, those auras. That's, That's nice. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's so good because, you know, I'm always standing up for the youth cause I'm 36. So I'm, I'm not ancient, but I'm not that young anymore. And mm-hmm. you know, you get a lot of people saying, Oh, the young people are this and the young people are that. And I'm always saying to them, ah, <laughs> wait a minute. The young people, are the ones that are actually, in my mind, talking the truth, and they—they're they, you are facing tough times, but you're—you've got this uh, tremendous positivity, like you said, this romanticism and this this energy about you is that is really lovely. So I've got I've got a lot of hope for the future. Looking at people like yourself, Alana, I've I've got a lot of hope for for the world. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, definitely, that is true, though. Like, I remember in Gory, people are so intimidated by going to these events, young people especially. In Gory, I was the youngest member, and I think the second youngest member was 40. I could be wrong, but as far as I remember, anyway. Whereas in our Wexford group, when we have our lockdown writers groups, I'd still be the youngest, but the one up from me would be 19, and then someone would be 20, or someone would be 24, 27. You know, there's like, it was like a big gap missing. And I was under the impression that no one my age was interested in writing, but that's the way it always seems, you know? Like, I also like music, and sometimes it feels like some no one's interested in the same music as me, but they are, of course. You know, it's just, you got to go out and find them, really. Yeah, and it's authenticity. I mean, my, the, the title of my book is All of Them Hipsters because growing up, you know, we a lot of the people I, you know, my friends and me, 
we were into things that are maybe more authentic than, than sort of the mainstream things that lots of other people were into. So like a lot of people were into sports and there's nothing wrong with being into sport, but you know, we were into books and music, like you say, music, especially. Mm-hmm. And then later on, and, and you know, I listened to vinyl when I was 18, for instance, because that was just yeah. something different that appealed to me. I went to my dad's vinyl collection and everyone else was listening to CDs and I was listening to vinyl. And then, you know, later on in life, people would start calling people like us hipsters, you know? Yeah. And that, that's kind of where my, the thing in my title of my book comes from, because it's like, we loved all these things and, you know, maybe romanticized it a bit, but, but, uh, and then people would look down on you and go, yeah, you're writing on a typewriter or you like romanticism of bookshops, you're a hipster. And really you're not, you're just, <laughs> you know, someone who just loves things that, that appeal to you. As opposed yeah, to yeah exactly and I find like maybe it's because I'm a girl I don't know what it is but like I've been a bit of a trendsetter you know I, I kind of tell myself that like I say like oh yeah I like the particular artist and he's popular now you know I was the one doing that and that's the great thing about being an individual do you know what I mean you can you can say things like that about yourself that's nice but it's interesting what you're saying about being a trendsetter because even in the music thing I've always gone and 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 you know, joined a band that had a certain style and then that would be the next kind of thing that came out. So I think maybe people like you and me, Alana, maybe we, we, we're we in tune with with something. I don't know what, you know. Mm-hmm. I get but, what you mean, yeah. It's a good feeling to have, it, although sometimes I get awful jealous. Like there's a few artists that I was big into when they first started off and I don't want to be a gatekeeper or anything like that, but... You know, it, it pisses me off when they become famous and I kind of lose my connection to them. But I am, nonetheless, I am obviously so proud and so happy when they do become famous and big. And I feel the same way about all types of artists. But it's it's just a funny feeling to have, you know. So, Alana, your your first book, we're expecting it out in the spring. I think and, so, uh, yeah. Hopefully. It's, it's going it's to be a big hit. So where would you like to see yourself in five years? Gosh, in five years, um, well, I'd like to have two or three books out by then, hopefully. That's not too much to say. But I think I'd like to be known for my art. It doesn't really faze me about money or anything like that. But a friend, I was with a friend of mine the other day and he told me that someone came up to him and told him that they had read his book. And I just thought that was must be such a surreal experience for someone to say that to you, you know, for someone to recognize you as the writer you are. So I just like to be known, I suppose, as a writer. I just like to be not necessarily a household name, but just well-known and recognized and waved at in the streets or something. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And what about you, Seth? Well, five years from now, hopefully um, I'll be out of lockdown. What? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say similar to to Alana, you know, just having a couple of books out, um, having people buy them and enjoy them and read them. You know, whether, whether it's ten people that buys the thing or whether it's a thousand people, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me as long as mm-hmm. as long as someone enjoyed it and, and I, I'm. I gave someone a bit of joy in their life or a bit of disgust or whatever. <laughs> you know? It's it's an interesting thing because, like I said, there's so many writers around Wexford now and, and we're meeting people through the bookshop and through the publishing. But, I, I mean, I could count on my hand how many of them actually care about money. 
the rest of them are exactly oh, like you. They're completely committed to the writing. They just want somebody to read the book. It's it's got nothing to do with money. Um, and I kind of know you're dealing with someone who's genuine when it's like that. Whereas the ones who are kind of asking you about money, you're kind of thinking, yeah, you're you're not going to stay at this. Hitism, mm-hmm. you know, it's the ones that think that they're better than than everyone else. That, that they're normally the ones that want the money, you know. But there's a difference between having that attitude and being confident. Confidence is a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. you know. And if you think that you, your book will be successful, that's that's what you should go out. It's it's success. That's the success. It's not the money. It's it's people enjoying it. So if you go out and, and you're confident in yourself and that your book's going to be successful then that's a positive attitude to have regardless of the money. But if you're only doing it for the money, you know, you're probably doing the wrong job. Yeah. And it's the same thing with music. That's, you know, I come from a music background, like I said, and there's no fucking money in that either. <laughs> um, I'm still going to pick up the guitar. Not as much anymore. As, I mean, you know, my new, like I said, the, the typewriter is the instrument that, look, I've, I've you know, I started writing on a typewriter, but it's the instrument I love at the moment. You know, it's, it's all about expression, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember a friend of mine telling me in school, last day of school, we were 18, he turned around and says, I'm going into medicine because I want lots of money. I want to live in Dublin 4. I want to be big and famous. And all the people I knew of my year that wanted to go into these big jobs, they have fuck all money now. They have, you know, they're, they're working from home. Fuck all to do. And it's the lads like myself and the boys who mess. Lads out in Australia now fucking living it up. Lads out in America living it up. You know, I, I'm a historian here tonight talking to three people on Zoom. But I, you know, I'm writing history books as well. I know history books are not going to make any money, you know. But I just want to write them because I want people to know the story of, just say, a railway line or you know, Brendan Behan sitting on a bench in Dublin feeding pigeons <laughs> in 1956. You know, I just want people to, and like I, I'm writing novels as well about my time in Galway, which, which, which was mental, thinking of it now. Now, at the time, I didn't think, and like even Zeph said he, on a typewriter, I remember the first day going into college and I had never used a computer before. And I was fucking anti, anti-computer. And I thought, I'm going to go in here and write down an essay on a refill page, you know, 10,000 words. And lecturer says, no, 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 it's a computer. And I really resented that I had to use a computer because the art of the handwriting is dying out. And I remember thinking to myself, but even today now, if I'm writing, I will write in a refill pad, a book, and then type it up. I, I, I just don't like typing it up on the computer. I, I think that's the one way that the computers have ruined writing in such a way is that, you know, editors now or other people only take something if it's typed on a computer instead of you writing it out um, handwritten. Of course, you know, 50 years ago, Patrick Cavanaugh didn't have a computer down Raglan Road, you know, writing about, you know, Tara Flynn or whatever. But I think, I think there is a certain sense in this country that, you know, people who do want to become famous and do want the money are dying off to a certain extent. And you know the people who are passionate, the people who go on Ryan Tuberty on, um, on a Friday night and they're there for the money. Why do you, can differentiate between the local author to say Alana gets on the late edge with her book or Zeph. You know that they're passionate about their book. 
because the way they speak about while from a mile away you can understand someone's on it they've just retired from just say being a football manager or a politician and they're looking for a quick book because they've lost their seat and as the book i'm reading at the moment uh, he lost his seat and now he's wrote about Fianna Gael, even though he wasn't a member but you know what i'm getting at that you know, I think you do know when someone is passionate. Like I, when I talk to Alana, I know Alana's passionate about her writing. And it comes across that Alana is passionate about writing. The same with Seth, same with Dottie Kavanagh, Dan Finn, Eamon Colfer. You know they're passionate about what they're writing about and they're not in it for the money. I think I think that's brilliant in Wexford that Wally has given authors a chance where you don't have to go and I make 30 cent out of a book. You know, you're there, you have a group around you. We're, we're like a family in the bookshop. We're, you know we're all like great cousins and all this and Wally's like the great uncle and he's taking <laughs> us in and he's promoting us and I think that's brilliant because you wouldn't see Amazon you wouldn't see Jeff we Alana goes up to Jeff says you know publish my book there please Jeff will laugh at you but if you go into Wally Wally will listen Wally has great editing team in there as well and I think what Wally is doing in Wexford is what happened in Galway in the 80s Cork in the 90s Dublin in the 60s and 70s that Wally's given a chance to maybe the people who like if you if, Bre- if Brendan Bean came in now with a copy of you know what he wrote years ago Confessions of an Irish <clears throat> uh, Rebel publishers might not publish that because you know it was controversial or even Hemingway if Hemingway came in now and wrote about gun running in Cuba they'd be like oh no you can't do that now the snowflakes won't like that now you know oh, you better not do that and even in America now you're seeing that the presidential election, you have two men in their 70s who, and we're all young, like we're, we're all in our, tw- uh, you know, none of us are over 40. And you're kind of thinking, if we were living in America today and they give us two people in their 70s, now we can't say nothing because our president's nearly 98 or something like that, but uh, no offence, Michael, who was in Galway in the 80s and just that, and was part of that literary scene. But, you know, I think young people today don't really care anymore what people think to a certain extent like if i was in america and two people in their 70s were running for president and i was thinking they never done anything creative you know they they're bland you know their their policies don't <laughs> recognize what young people need today like none of them two have spoke about amazon killing off the book trade in america not one of them have spoke about protecting small businesses which are being killed by amazon I, I think it's sad that Amazon is allowed to do this and no one will, no politician is standing up and saying, you know what, it's time we protect the small shops instead of protecting yeah. the big but, guys. But, okay, I agree with you on that, but, you know, it, it's up to us to take our own leadership. Don't wait for leadership. I mean, if you want to see Amazon fall, then just don't buy from them. You know, like that's what Alana said. She's never bought from Amazon in her life, which is brilliant. Now, I, I, I'm not, I'm not as clean as you, Alana. I'm dirty. I've, I've bought from Amazon, and I bought from Amazon a month ago because there's only <laughs> place I could find the cut that I wanted for my child. But you know, if we're really sad that that was the only place you could find that. Do you know what I mean? That's not your problem per se, because that's the only place you could find that. You know. Yeah. That's the, the interesting thing about they that. Had inadvertently. That, that is it, exactly. That's the impact mm-hmm. because they've closed places that would have been selling those things. The same as they've closed bookshops, you know, they've closed record shops. They're just like this cancerous growth that's that's traveled across the planet, you know. 